I'm Joan Kerr, and we're excited to bring you this program from the 2013 University of Iowa Provost Global Forum, focused on refugees in the heartland. World Canvas is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. The program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV and KRUI 89.7. It will also be available, along with all programs in this series, as a free podcast on iTunes and on the International Program's website. I'd like to thank our production partners, UITV, the Pentecost Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. Special thanks this evening go to the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights and staff members Amy Weissman and Joan Nischelsky, who organized the expansive schedule of events for this four-day Provost Global Forum. With alarming regularity, we hear reports of refugee crises erupting on the borders of nations in conflict. To mention only one current example, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR, reports that one million Syrians have abandoned their homes since the outbreak of civil war and have sought safety in the neighboring countries of Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. Up to 7,000 new refugees arrive in these camps every day, and 78% of them are women and children. The UNHCR estimates that 42.5 million men, women, and children around the world need protection, shelter, and assistance from the UN Refugee Agency. We're going to tackle the topic of refugees in the heartland with an expert and compelling group of guests tonight, beginning with the people who are here with me on stage. Just to my left is Larry Yunk, Senior Resettlement Officer for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Regional Office for the United States and the Caribbean. Thank you for being here, Larry. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And just next to him is Depinder Mayo, who is Director of the Refugee and Immigrant Program at the Advocates for Human Rights in Minneapolis. And thank you for coming. Thank you, Mm Jim. And at the end, we have Linda Hartke, President and CEO of the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Thanks for being here. Wonderful to be here, Jim. So I think we have to begin our discussion tonight with uh, defining a few terms. Uh, American public discourse these days is full of conversation about immigration. But refugees are in a different category than immigrants. And I'd like you, Larry, to help us understand just what we mean when we talk about refugees. Great. And first, let me also thank the University of Iowa for this great conference on refugees. I think all of us have an idea of what refugees and their people who have fled to certain events and and such. But as we talk about refugees uh, in the the sense of people who might someday come to Iowa, uh, we're talking about people who fled persecution. And, and people have, have a well-founded fear of persecution. And in looking at persecution, we're also looking at very particular grounds for that persecution. The persecution might be because of their race, their religion, their nationality. Uh, it could be because they're a member of a particular social group or their political opinion. And because of that, they've had to flee their country to seek safety in another country. And really they're unable or unwilling to, to go back to the country that they're a national of to seek the protection that you and I would expect to receive from our own country mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So tell us how this process works. Um, someone finds his or her way out of uh, an area maybe where there's conflict, combat, and they, they come into the hands of an organization that might be working with the UNHCR. How does the process start for either a a group of people or an individual person in uh, looking for uh, refugee status somewhere in the world? Well, there's probably a lot of different ways people become refugees, and in our audience tonight we have a lot of refugees who probably could each tell you a different story. But I think as you look over whether some people flee in large groups, as you were mentioning Syria, where it's a 
We see people fleeing in vast numbers over borders and into neighboring countries. Sometimes people flee individually as refugees, and they may have to make their way by themselves through many, many different countries. But at some point, I mean, you're a refugee by definition. Uh, we don't make you a refugee. We recognize you mm -hmm. as a refugee if you met that definition. Mm -hmm. And normally what would happen is if you fled into a neighboring country, uh, in many countries, you would end up being uh, probably sent to uh, UNHCR, an office, or perhaps a refugee camp. Some countries might themselves have set up some system that you would go to, but you'd have to find someone who's going to be able to recognize you and give you the paperwork that's going to be required for you to be recognized as a refugee in that first country of asylum. Yeah. Well, I know that your particular job involves um, managing the U.S. resettlement policy. Um, how does that happen? Well, it's in Washington, so uh, <laughs> we all know how simple answers are in Washington. <laughs> uh, but uh, our, our, our role is uh, a global one in resettlement, so we work with various resettlement countries. The U.S. is certainly our best and biggest partner on resettlement, but there are other countries uh, who also do resettlement. Our role is mostly, again, out in the field, in the refugee camps or in the countries where refugees find themselves overseas, to try to identify uh, out of the more than 15 million people who are refugees, which will be the maybe about 100,000 who will even be given a chance to be uh, interviewed for refugee status. So a lot of our work with the United States is working with the Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, be able to identify people we think are particularly vulnerable refugees. All refugees are vulnerable, but some are much more vulnerable than others. It could be unaccompanied minors. It could be women who are on their own. It could be victims of violence, victims of torture. Uh, and then to prepare those cases and refer them on to the U.S. program and hopefully onward for resettlement to mm -hmm. places in the U.S. Mm -hmm. How many refugees in any one year are allowed to come into the U.S.? Is that all very dependent upon the circumstances at the time? Well, the U.S. Uh, has a, a program that's very different than going back to the original question about immigrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. One difference in the U.S. is refugees is a very annual process. Every year, the President and the Congress will uh, have consultations, and they will, at the end of those consultations, the President will issue a refugee ceiling, the most refugees who could arrive in that year. Yeah. For this year, that number is 70,000, and uh, so up to 70,000 refugees uh, could arrive in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I'd say in most years recently, the numbers fall rather short of that 70,000 mm -hmm. target, but uh, that's how the process is set, and, mm -hmm. yeah. and the numbers are assigned. Yeah. Well, I think I'll turn now to Dependa and to Linda, because we can talk um, from your points of view. Dependa, you work in Minneapolis, and, and the Lutheran uh, group you work with, I believe you're based in Baltimore. Um, you are actually working here in the States, helping, to, helping uh, refugees integrate into new communities and, and find a, a settled place. Uh, Dependa, tell us what your organization does. So the Advocates for Human Rights focuses mostly on asylum seekers, and we represent asylum seekers and help them apply for asylum in the United States. And the, the difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee is that a refugee, uh, it's the same definition, this fear of persecution uh, based on one of these five groups, but 
Um, the refugee has been processed outside of the United States and has been given that status and come to the United States and then resettled. Um, an asylum seeker has got to the United States. Um, they, have, uh, they may have no status. They may have a visitor visa. They may have a student visa. Um, they may have entered without inspection by walking across the Mexican border. They have uh, oftentimes literally just fled the violence. They have escaped. They have left their family and loved ones behind. And they must apply for asylum in the United States. And that is a very complicated legal process, um, and it takes a complicated application. So what we do is provide legal representation to low-income asylum seekers in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. How many people would you say you see and you serve in a, in a given year? Uh, at any given time, we have about, in a year, we have about two to 300 open cases. And that's another aspect of the asylum process. The cases can go on for years, and they can be stuck in the, in the process seeking, for, seeking asylum for you know, five, six, seven, up to 10 years sometimes. And this entire time, an asylum seeker um, is not going to be reunited with their family. They will be separated from their family, and then after they're granted asylum, uh, then they can start the family reunification process, which in and of itself is also a very long and complicated process. Mm-hmm. So when someone is living here and they're in that process of seeking recognition um, and, to stay, and the ability to stay here in the States, they're essentially living sort of under... Uh, they can't work legally, I assume? They can't be well, part of the economy? At a certain time, they can work. They are a very vulnerable population. We're talking about a population, like I said, is isolated. They're suffering trauma on several levels. Um, They are suffering trauma from the initial persecution, trauma from flight, which is often a harrowing journey across many countries, and then the trauma of waiting and being isolated from their family. Um, While they are here in the United States and they're an asylum seeker, they're not eligible for most benefits. They're not eligible most... Um, oftentimes, they're not eligible for health care or for housing. Um, and after they apply for asylum, after six months, they can apply for a work visa to be able to work here and stay here while their process is complete. But um, their benefits are significantly limited. Mm-hmm. You know, when you first meet someone who, who has come to you looking for help, is, is there a story or are there a couple of stories that stand out? Absolutely. I can, I can first say that it's a very diverse population from all over the world, the types of people who are fleeing persecution. And the persecution that they're fleeing um, really is, is, is a broad range. Uh, I can say that one of the most, some of the particular cases we've been seeing are LGBT-based cases from around the world, from different parts of the world, um, whether it be uh, Uganda or Cameroon or Malaysia or, or Jamaica. And there was one story of a young man from Jamaica um, who, through his entire life, had been targeted uh, with violence, held at gunpoint, um, been attacked and beaten, and practically on a daily basis, he he said that he would have stones thrown at him. And he would walk every day knowing that these stones could start coming at any moment. Um, And he had an incredible amount of poise and dignity, and when, when I met with him, when he spoke about his story, and I only imagine that's the way he must have walked through these streets. Um, but, um, you know, in those types of cases, it's even more difficult because it's not a government that's persecuting him. It's a community that's persecuting him. So he also had to establish that he couldn't move to another part of Jamaica. Hmm. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Uh, Linda, let's move to you a little bit. And you work with Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, and uh, you operate at a, an international level as well as doing a lot of uh, community work here in the United States. Tell us a little bit about what your group does. Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service is all about welcome. It's about welcome to newcomers to this country, um, the support, assistance, friendship uh, to those newcomers, but it's also about the process of transforming communities themselves into places of welcome. This includes direct service and assistance, but it also includes shaping public policy and practice, making systemic change to ensure that, that this country lives up to its greatest values of hospitality and protection to the most vulnerable. You know, when, when people ask me the question of what is a refugee, the question doesn't need to be answered only legally. A refugee is an incredible asset to our communities. A refugee is someone of great courage and resilience who brings enormous gifts and benefits to our communities, changing not only their life, their family's life, but changing the shape and face and strength of our communities. Well, we'll have a good opportunity this evening to hear about some of the um, efforts underway to make more welcoming communities here in the United States. Can, can you give us a general sense as to the uh, willingness of states or regions of the country to accept um, sometimes large populations of people from a, from a given region in the rest of the world? Is there an example any of you could give us of something that is... Uh, that maybe was difficult at the beginning, but has gotten better? Well, in, in my experience, communities and states are very eager to welcome refugees. Um, families, individuals, unaccompanied refugee minors. With, with the network of partners we work with across the U.S. in 42 different communities, they're eager to have more refugees. The, Larry spoke of, of the presidential determination, the limit of 70,000 refugees to come to this country. These communities are, are ready to welcome and receive refugees, more than that, if they were able to come to this country. Is there a vehicle by which a, a community, choose any community, if, if there were a massive interest in that community to welcome refugees, is there a process by which that can be made known to the State Department, to uh, the UNHCR, and, and an organized effort to to help set, I think we have an example in Iowa that we'll be talking about later because Iowa was very important in resettling the uh, Vietnamese boat people many, many years ago. But um, how, how does um, a particularly um, uh, welcoming community make that known to the government perhaps and, and allow a pathway for a group of people to come and settle in, a, in their state? Do you know? I would say uh, certainly always writing to people in Congress uh, because it is an annual process, it is an annual decision, mm -hmm. and if people feel that you know that more people could be resettled, uh, or if they're seeing examples, good examples in their own communities of how refugees are doing, mm -hmm. I think that makes a huge difference. Uh, today at the conference, we heard from an employer talking about how much uh, the refugees mean to his company and where he's working. Mm -hmm. And I think getting that kind of, uh, those of us who work in Washington especially, we, we know that the voices from the rest of the country mean much more on these decisions than they do from Washington. If we're down there saying it, it doesn't mean the same thing if somebody from Waterloo, Iowa is coming in and saying, you know, we've had refugees and I've had a good experience. I have friends who are refugees. So I think, and, and people in Congress are looking for that kind of feedback. And, with a lot of 
bills at the moment on immigration and such, it's a good time to put um, your voice in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would also be important to let the governor know in yeah. any state. Um, most states have a state refugee coordinator who has particular responsibility within that state mm-hmm. um, for the process of welcoming and supporting mm-hmm. both communities that receive refugees and refugees themselves. Right. Well, and, and as we mentioned, you're with a, a Lutheran organization. I know the Catholic uh, organizations that work with refugees, and I'm sure most uh, religious groups have, have some involvement here. Uh, do you find that this is a great passion among the people in your, in your uh, you know, church group to, to assist refugees getting resettled? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, every faith tra- tradition has uh, a deep belief and commitment that part of, of the calling of our faith is to welcome strangers and, and to consider even those we don't know our neighbors. And, and so the, the service and welcome to refugees is, is a deep part of, of who we are. My first experience, the first time I was inspired by refugees, and that's been many, many times since, but was when I was a teenager and in my local church in Massachusetts where the congregation welcomed a family from Chile who had been political prisoners. And that changed my life. It certainly changed their life, but it also changed the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Dupinder, could I ask you to tell us how you got involved in this area? What, what has sparked your interest? Sure. Well, it's a family story. My, my parents are from India, but my, my grandparents and my father were originally in what is were born in what is originally now, what is what is what was originally Pakistan. So, when the country was partitioned, um, they left Pakistan and they came to what is now India, um, and they were part of that uh, movement of people. And then my parents in uh, the 70s moved to New York and immigrated here, and then um, that's where I grew up and lived most of my life. And then I moved to Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and actually my parents joined me in Minneapolis <laughs> a few years later. So they went from India to New York to, mm-hmm. to Minneapolis. I was really excited about that. But that has always been part of, of my, my life story. And, uh, you know, I think that um, the story of a refugee and of, of people moving across countries and from different places, fleeing harm, is a really universal story. Mm-hmm. It's something that I mean, if you look back far enough in all of our lives, you're, you're going you're gonna to run into that story at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have enough time to, to go into this in the depth it deserves, but uh, from this group, is there a particular policy change that, that you see as sort of the primary thing uh, we should all be thinking about and, and working toward that would make refugee resettlement or refugee um, uh, integration better, easier in this country? Is there any one thing that would help? Well, the Refugee Protection Act has just been filed in both the, the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. So it would be great if, if listeners um, would contact their elected officials and ask them to support that. Mm-hmm. It's time to update legislation that, that was written now more than 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the nature of, of what's happening in American communities, of the refugees that are coming, things have changed, and, and it's, it's time time to update that legislation to make it more fair and more compassionate. Yes, great. Well, thank you. Larry Young, we'll see you a little bit later. Thank you, Depender Mile, and we'll see you again later, Linda Hartke. So please, thank our guests.
This is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa, and I'm your host, Joan Kerr. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce our next guest, Alec Weck. People all over the world have seen her extraordinary face and image on magazine covers, in photo shoots, and on high-fashion runways, but they may not know that she became a refugee in 1991, when at the age of 14, she escaped the civil war raging in her home country, now the independent nation of South Sudan, and found her way to Great Britain, where her life took a very different turn. Now an international supermodel, Alec Weck has been an advisor to the U.S. Committee for Refugees and is here with us tonight in her role as a supporter of the UNHCR Refugee Agency. So please welcome Alec Weck. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, such Thanks, a pleasure Joanne, to have you here me, and really. to meet you. Yes, such so, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, wonderful to have you here and, and uh, among such an interesting group of people who shared some of the same experiences that you have. Um, I would like you, if you don't mind, to walk back to those early years when you were just a kid growing up in what was then Sudan and expecting to live the life you were surrounded by and then everything broke apart with the Civil War. Could you tell us how that journey happened? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was born and raised in a small town called um, Wau, W-A-U, um, in South Sudan. And um, up until the age of 12. But before that, at the age of five, I have great fun memories, you know, obviously um, climbing trees, um, watching my mother grow you know, all sorts of crops. I mean, she basically was the woman of the house. She had nine of us. She hmm. ran the house. She told us who, you know, gets a new outfit and who is going to have to get the down, you know, hand yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, no, 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 what about me? And she's like, no, yeah. you do what I say. <laughs> and she meant it. So it was just, it was really simple. I always say... We all grow up doing things in different ways, whether you sleep in a bed or you sleep on the floor. But the most fundamental, the values, are always the same. Family is family, um, and so forth. Um, so when the Civil War got really, when it, when it broke out in 83, um, we didn't really realize as, 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 as kids that yeah. there was a war going on but we'll kind of hear it on the radio. But as time went by and um, different other different towns on the outskirts of, um, of South Sudan were getting captured, we'll, we'll keep hearing it more and more. And then finally, um, in 87 or so, um, we realized that the civil war was actually going on because the shootings just mm -hmm. couldn't stop um, for three days. We were literally barricaded into our own homes, and um, they were the militias, which were the worst. They would come, you know, in the middle of the night, and they would literally rob and shoot. So um, the police ran out of ammunitions, and, um, and they basically came out um, with microphones and said, you know, you can stay, but we have nothing to protect you, you know, um, civilians. So um, what, you can, you can stay if you, you know, you wanna, if you wanna die, but mm -hmm. obviously nobody wants to. So um, there goes thousands of us um, 
neighbors, um, just walking, like just like I see it on CNN, you know, all these refugees, yeah. and just taking whatever that you can carry. And, um, and being, you know, from nine, um, it's, it's a big family and it's not easy, but it also came in handy because my mom was like, you're little, you carry that. All right, <laughs> size, you carry that. So one person will carry a pot, another one will carry, you know, sheets, the other one will carry something else. And then some of us had malaria. So, you know, when you have malaria, you're really weak. So we'll have to walk a little bit and then stop, rest. And my father wasn't, you know, in a good health at the time. Um, so it took us like two weeks walking, you know, in the bush, and it was the raining season. Um, there was a bridge. We couldn't use the bridge because, you know, they were not allowing people. So we were literally crossing the river in like one of those tree logs yeah. that was doing this, and we didn't know how to swim, so I was terrified. My sisters were terrified, but um, thanks to my parents, they grew up in... In, in the village, um, they were the first generation to go to school. Um, if you know the history of, 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 of Sudan in general, before now, this, um, the independent South Sudan, um, they had really good knowledge of living in the village. That's when I really realized, like, I was a city kid. I mean, mm-hmm. I, am a, <laughs> I am a small town girl in comparison mm-hmm. To moving to London and you know yeah. living in New York yeah. and traveling, but yeah. at the time, I mean, I realized I knew nothing about survival, mm-hmm. and um, I'm like, Mom, we're in the bush. Where are we going? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like this, this, you just don't yeah. know. Where, but they know where the sun is rising. You know, which direction to go to, <laughs> and obviously, you know, we didn't really have much food. But thank God again. Um, it was the raining season, so every day it was kind of like a scavenging, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, experience. My mom will go and find, you know, all sorts of fruits that um, we didn't even particularly um, eat in yeah. in Wow, and would boil up the vegetables we, ha- you know, got yeah. along the way and sleep in other people's hats. It was really mm-hmm. weird because mm-hmm. it, they ran away because of the war, yeah. you know that was going on, so we'd sleep in, um, just so that we don't get bitten from, you know. So um, that was a really good survivor, like, Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. walking past it. So we lived for six months in the bush, and thank God um, we tried to go to, like, any distant relative. And we got there, and they gave us one hat. That was the WEC family hat. And... um, my mom, every now and then, she would try and sneak to go to the city because yeah. we had nothing. Yeah. We didn't cultivate because we didn't live in the village. We didn't have any hats. Um, our kettles, we didn't have them. Um, so they really did open the door for mm-hmm. us, which was very kind, gave mm-hmm. us the one hat. My mom would go to the city. Um, again, the resilience she had because mm-hmm. she, she had already gone through the first civil war um, um, during the 50s and then in the 60s with the agreement, they came back. They were actually living in exile in Liberia, Mm -hmm. Uganda, um, Zaire. They kept just Mm -hmm. running and my mother would always and my father would cultivate and he Mm -hmm. was a teacher. So we lived there for six months in the village while the war was really just going um, Mm -hmm. 
going on day and night in WOW. And um, my mother would come every other week or two to the city to, um, to bring some salt so that she could trade it with the villagers so that yeah. we could get, you know, vegetables and, and protein and, and whatnot. Because, you know, I mean, yeah. this family let us in, but mm-hmm. they can't feed us every day. Uh, you know, nine, ten of us. So yeah. Um, yeah. after six months, the war um, shootings kind of came down. So we walked back to Wow <laughs> because... We had nothing. Yeah. What we're going to do? My father really wanted us to um, to have education, mm-hmm. especially the girls. Um, he said, "You know, my girls will get married. They will have children, but they will be educated." Mm-hmm. So we came back to Wow, and um, it was so unreal seeing our schools, people living mm-hmm. in, you know, cooking, mm-hmm. smoke. It was just. It was like a movie, like a really bad movie, mm-hmm. but it was, <laughs> it was reality. Yeah. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. My mom is like, my dad, no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this is going to be fixed, right? Yeah. She's like, I don't know. Yeah. So. so how did you make it to Great Britain? What was the path out of Sudan? Well, that's when we ended up, um, obviously, there was nothing in WOW, mm-hmm. and people were just disappearing left and right. Um, would go to where we, um, there's no running water, obviously, or, or plumbing, so we'd go and fetch water up in the hill, um, the pump, because that's mm-hmm. where the clean water is, <coughs> and where we used to have fun and meet with, like, neighbors, mm-hmm. you know, other neighbors, children, you know, friends, and so forth. So um, would smell this awful smell, and it's like, human being yeah and nobody's taking responsibility mm-hmm. for it mm-hmm. so um and neighbors kind of disappearing and you'll hear whispers so it became really scary because that could be me that could be my yeah. dad that could yeah. be my mom and there is no responsibility getting taken so my mom and my dad said we have to get out of here and my dad also needed medical attention mm-hmm. with his hip that got infected because he was supposed to have had a surgery. Mm-hmm. So the metal piece that was in ended up digging him and yeah. giving him, you know, um, became infected mm-hmm. and then he became um, paralyzed mm-hmm. um, halfway down. So he said, whatever that happens, I want, you know, these children to get education. So um, that was a whole ordeal as well, going to mm-hmm. Khartoum because there was no flights. Mm-hmm. Um, the only flights that were working... Um, operating, excuse me, at the time were um, the um, Boeing flights, um, which is the Hercules, the fighting planes that you sit, and then you're ready to jump out with a parachute. So um, <laughs> we did. You have to go and then line and wait, and there's a lot of bribery going on. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're like poor. Yeah. We don't have yeah. anything to bribe. Yeah. So after four, six attempts, I mean, I was like, Mom. Since they're calling us the WEC army, because it's like, <laughs> 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 I said, I am going to need to break this. We're mm-hmm. going to need to disperse. She's like, yeah. what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm serious. And she was like, uh, and it really was not easy because I didn't want to leave my mom. Like, mm-hmm. we struggled, I will mm-hmm. say, but we always struggled together. Yeah, you know, we sure, were always together. Sure. So, um, yeah, I just walked off. I went onto the line of my neighbor, and they're like, and who are you? And I'm like, 
that's my dad. <laughs> and he was another dinky guy it. as yeah, well. Yeah. So they looked at me and they're like, okay, you stand over there. And I'm looking at my mom and she's like, oh. and she talked to him yeah. and she's like, please yeah. take her to my yeah. aunt. Yeah. And we, you know, really live as a community. So everybody, somebody knows somebody. They know mm-hmm. my uncle's a doctor or, you know. Yeah. So they, um, yeah, that's how I mm. ended up going to Khartoum. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't sleep that night. Mm. I was just like, I want to go to my relatives. I want to go to my relatives because yeah. I see all these guys' relatives like hugging him and kissing him. And they're like, and who's that? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is the daughter of Wegatian. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's yeah. been so terrible. And mm. then he had to sit down and explain what mm. took place. And that's how I ended up in mm-hmm. Khartoum. And then after um, two, three years, I ended up going to seek refuge um, in, in London, where mm-hmm. my oldest sister wow. um, applied for asylum. So then, we only unfortunately have a couple of minutes left, but, but your life has taken such an unbelievable turn since that, that moment that you right. made it out of Khartoum and, and you know, began a new life with your uh, Well, relatives. of course I had to adjust to a completely <laughs> different um, culture. It was like day and night. I mean, as soon as I got there, I remembered, you know, I had my little skirt, my little top, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is like the freezer, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And my sister was like, you know, throwing sweaters on me, and I'm just like, oh, my goodness, what is this? This is so bizarre. Like, you know, is this just happening? And she's like, I like, get used to it. Like, we have to wear gloves, and you've got to wear jackets. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And she's like, absolutely. And um, so I did that. And just being in the train, Mm. seeing a cyclist with his cycling shorts, I'm like, I see his stuff. (laughs) This is so embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) So in the introduction, you know, we we mentioned this wonderful career you've had very... Wonderful international there career. Is, that was another chapter. Yeah. Like I told you, know, I had to you know, get used to um, not just the weather, but also to speak the language, yeah. to be able to articulate myself, to um, also um, communicate and mm-hmm. write mm-hmm. and so forth. And, um, and I was 14, so it's, it's quite a funny age. You're, yeah. you're a teenage, but not quite a teenage. I always say you're kind of like a mini teenage. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. You're like finding out stuff about yourself. Yeah. You're, you know, trying to make new friends and trying mm-hmm. to communicate when you couldn't really speak. And I yeah. really like to express myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Love the art since I was yeah. young. So my father always embraced all of us and said, you can do whatever you want, but no messing around with education. Mm-hmm. And he was very serious. He was very loving, but very firm. Mm-hmm. So as long as you did your education, you know what to do, mm-hmm. um, that's it. So um, the community were really amazing. They welcomed us. Um, in my school, they had a special needs school um, mm-hmm. teacher, mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't put me, you know, in a classroom where I, I where I was. I felt, you know, any yes. different. They yes. put me in the same age yes. group. Yes. Um, very challenging, but I think it was a very good thing um, that they did that. And um, and I think sometimes, you know, when you know you're a refugee, I think there's like a stigma. But I think there's so much we, we, you know, can bring into the community. And again, mm-hmm. as I was telling you, you know, 
just because somebody, you know, sleeps in a different way or does yeah. things in a different manner, we're all human beings. Mm-hmm. Like the most mm-hmm. fundamental thing mm-hmm. we all share in common. Mm-hmm. Love is love, family is family, you know, real values are real values uh, yeah. around the world. So um, that was that. I thought I finished until, mm-hmm. you know, this guy walked up to me one Sunday afternoon as I'm going to, uh, you know, just hang out with a friend of mine, my mate from college, and she said, have you ever thought of being a model? And I'm like, oh, no. Don't you make fun of me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wow. So she's Incredible. like, no, 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 I'm serious. And um, she insisted. And, and, and at the time, um, so my friend, she was more savvy. She grew up in London. She actually wanted to be a model, you know, mm-hmm. when she saw the card and she was yeah. like oh this is really legitimate I like because yeah. I always say like oh no 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 this is dodgy she was mm-hmm. like no no no, no. <laughs> this is not dodgy <laughs> um, I'm like well, you have no idea maybe like some pornography yeah, like yeah, yeah. page three yeah. like that. you know I really <laughs> will even attempt to even no. try and <laughs> look like it um, but my mother was like no 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 we came from South Sudan. We went through a civil war. You are going to finish your education and get your degree. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, zip it, zip it. And that's her. And I went back, and finally, um, she insisted, insisted. So I went in with my sister. And um, in fact, it wasn't dodgy, mm-hmm. it was, it's you know, legitimate. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's where I started. And that was over 15 years ago. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, I never really. Forgot, and I've got a lot of families yeah. still living in yeah. South Sudan, and you know yeah. I've witnessed UNHCR um, just how they, they they just really fought for 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 the refugees, what they're going through when there's nobody. People are actually running away in these mm-hmm. like conditions and dangerous um, situations yeah. um, just to try and help another mm-hmm. human being fellow. That was very yeah. humbling for me. So I vow to. Um, use the platform that um, fashion has given me to really shed light and importance. Well, uh, boy, I think we could listen to your your story for hours. It's so exciting to to be here with you, to hear what you've gone through and what you're trying to do now to help bring attention to the refugee needs. And and we need to move on to our our next segment, so I'm afraid I'll have to say goodbye, but I do want to say thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. If you're interested in learning more about Alek Weck's experience, you can check out her book, Alek from Sudanese Refugee to International Supermodel. This is World Canvas from International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr, and this program is part of the 2013 Provost Global Forum on Refugees in the Heartland, organized by the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights and International Programs. And you can learn more about the forum at international.uiowa.edu.uichr. Joining me now on stage are uh, three more guests I'm anxious to introduce to you. Alexis Perlmutter is just next to me here, and she's Associate Director of Policy at the National Immigrant Justice Center in Chicago. And uh, at the far end is Anne-Marie Kudlatz, Executive Director of the Southern Sudan Community Association in Omaha. And in the middle, you'll recognize Linda Hartke, who was with us before, and she's from the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service in Baltimore. So, Alexis, thank you for coming here. 
join me. Yes, absolutely. Um, you work primarily in the area of immigration detention. So tell us, please, what is immigration detention? Sure. Actually, so, so my organization has a number of, of different projects. My personal experience um, is focused a little bit more in immigration detention. Um, but if I can give a quick overview of, of the other work that my organization does, um, we actually you know, we work to um, defend and advance the rights of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. Um, and we do that through three different areas, um, primarily legal services. We serve about 10,000 um, immigrants each year. Um, we also have a fantastic network of about 1,500 pro bono attorneys who help us, um, and a number, hundreds of them actually are working on asylum cases with us. Um, and then we also do impact litigation and policy, so really trying to change the law and policy in the federal courts um, and, and in D.C. So immigration detention. Um, immigration detention is sort of, uh, it's a consequence of um, years of an enforcement-first immigration policy. Um, the immigration detention system has really grown exponentially over the past decade or so, um, to the point where we now hold about 400,000 people every year in about 250 facilities around the country. Um, and the primary purpose of immigration detention is to make sure that non-citizens appear at their court hearings um, and comply with the judge's orders. Mm -hmm. So what are conditions like in, in immigration detention? It varies by facility. Um, immigration detention, um, you know, one of the challenges in, in sort of advocating for reform in the immigration detention system is that some facilities are run by the government, um, some are run by private prison companies, and some are actually contracted out to county jails and, and sheriffs. Um, so each facility brings its own challenges. Um, you know, but I think one of the key things that we see as, as really problematic is that in the immigration system, you don't have a right, you're not being charged with a crime, and so you don't have the same procedural protections um, that you would in the criminal justice system. So, for example, you don't have a right to a speedy trial. You don't have a right to an attorney if you can't afford one. Um, and so when you're in detention, oftentimes you're cut off from the outside world and family and friends, and you really aren't quite sure how long you're going to be in detention. And I think, you know, the, the, the sort of mental health effects of that um, can be damaging in and of itself. Um, but then we're also asking people to defend themselves from deportation without the benefit of an attorney. Um, and they're doing that from a jail. So and perhaps in a language that is uh, not English. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Huh. So what do you think can be done to make those conditions a little bit better? There's a lot that can be done. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, I think we, we really need to take advantage of this moment where we are talking about immigration reform at the legislative level um, and really take the opportunity to rethink the system and create a system that works for us, that that really respects our American values and, and really recognizes the benefits that, that refugees and asylum seekers would bring mm -hmm. to our country. Um, and so with that, you know, we really need to rethink whether or not we need detention at all in the immigration, uh, in the immigration context. Um, there are a number of alternatives to detention that are not only more cost-effective, but really more humane and recognize that you know, they, the, these are people who are fleeing persecution and are trying to build another life for themselves in this country, they're going to show up at their court hearings. They're going to comply with the orders that they're given by a judge. Um, and so, you know, do we need to be spending the money and, and really encouraging horrible conditions um, 
in, during that process, or can we rethink that altogether? Well, you know, Larry mentioned earlier that his job with UNHCR involves um, working with State Department, um, Homeland Security, and so on. So I suspect there is some legitimate question um, that there, there may be somebody who tries to come in as someone who says they're seeking asylum, but actually would sure. have a, a, a less good motive. Sure. Um, yeah, w what would be the alternative? There are a number of different alternatives to detention programs, and some of them can include things like an ankle bracelet monitoring or frequent checking in with the government, whether it be in person or by you know, daily phone calls. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, there, there are also community-based programs that are looking to churches and, and community groups um, and, and other social service providers who can really you know, provide that support while they're going through the process of you know, the government determining their credibility. Sure, sounds good. Well, so Anne-Marie, let's go to you and hear a little bit about Omaha and about actually the history of resettlement of refugees here in the Midwest. Okay, sure. Well, Omaha has long been a welcoming community. Uh, back in, you know, from if you're not a Native American, you're an immigrant. So all of our founding fathers, when they moved to Omaha, they maintained that rich cultural heritage. Um, so the Polish people and the Italian people and the Bohemian people they all take great pride in their ethnic cultures. And you uh, tie that in with the uh, low cost of living, uh, relatively easy, attainable, entry-level employment. We had the railroads and the meatpacking um, plants. So it was just a good fit um, for refugees over the years. I know when I was growing up, I had an aunt that was Korean, and they were bringing in more Korean people. And then as refugees began to come, Vietnamese and Hmong, then in the late 1990s, when the Sudanese came to Omaha, they found those same uh, qualities of life, you know, relatively easy entry-level employment, low cost of living, and a very welcoming community with the different church support and congregations and community member support. And so in uh, 2000, um, they founded the agency. As word in the refugee community spread that Omaha was a good place for refugees, more and more Sudanese started migrating, called secondary migrants, moving to Omaha. Um, and starting their new lives there. So the agency was really originally founded by some volunteers in church groups and uh, an attorney, they befriended an attorney, and founded the agency to provide English classes and help refugees get jobs, and then also educate the community about who were refugees. If they went to the DMV to apply for a state ID, you know, they didn't know what are the documents they're trying to show, they didn't understand that process. Um, and then in fiscal year 2001, they subcontracted with the Ethiopian Community Development Council in Arlington, Virginia, ECDC, um, through the Department of State Bureau of Populations, Refugees, and Migration to become an actual resettlement affiliate. And so that allowed the federal funding to relocate refugees directly to Omaha. And then in about 2004, um, it wasn't just Sudanese refugees, but refugees from Somalia, um, different countries in Africa, the last few fiscal years, the majority of our refugees have been coming from Burma and Bhutan. Wow. So when you say that Omaha has this long history and, and present-day uh, status as a welcoming community, was there ever any pushback? Was there a part of the state or a part of the community that just really thought, why are we, why are we so involved with refugees? Well, I think back in 2000, um, our founding Sudanese fathers uh, did it very appropriately where they brought in the community partners at that time. Uh, they met with the American Red Cross, and our mayors have always been very, uh, very accommodating and helpful and supportive of refugee populations. And so they founded the Omaha Refugee Task Force, 
And at the, at the beginning, it was mainly for programs and services that the refugees at the time needed. So women's health programs for Sudanese refugees and early childhood care programs and things like that. Then over the years, it's evolved to not just the Omaha Refugee Task Force. It's more of an in information sharing uh, meeting every other month. But we have the subcommittees that actually do the action. Um, there's housing, health, education, employment, and then World Refugee Day. Wow, well, that, yeah, that's terrific. Thank you. Uh, I want to move to you, Linda, now, so that you can give us some more examples of what a welcoming community would look like, uh, any, any particular tips you could give any of us who are trying to think about this for our own communities. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. A, a former refugee leader who's now in Fargo um, has talked about the short welcome and the long welcome. Mm. And, and the short welcome being that initial arrival someone at the airport to greet them, someone who knows their name and who speaks their language, Mm -hmm. someone who makes sure that they are safe and are in a place where they can feel safe after many, many years of not being safe, Mm -hmm. beginning to learn the language, um, understanding how to navigate a community, getting the kids into school, thinking about work. That's the short welcome. The long welcome does take a long time, Mm -hmm. And, and it really is about developing a sense of belonging in a new place. Mm-hmm. We've all been in new places in our lives, and we know it can take a long time to feel that you actually belong there. Mm-hmm. The kinds of things that make a difference, certainly language, um, a, a good access to and use of the English language, mm-hmm. and friends, mentors, coaches, teachers can help with that. A coworker in the workplace who's willing to take their break and simply sit with you and practice speaking English, um, or, lear- or being taught your own dialect. Um, learning about American culture, that doesn't come easy for any of us, I think, and it's changing constantly. Um, but, but the patience and friendship of, of Native Americans to uh, teach American culture and help people navigate makes a huge difference. But also to f- have your own culture appreciated. So a mark of a welcoming community is a place that will celebrate the festivals and occasions, uh, the food, the music, the dance of of the refugees who are present in those communities. A welcoming community also involves political leaders in those communities standing up and saying, we are a place of welcome. We're deliberate and intentional about this. We invest in refugees as part of our future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find uh, we, we've been hearing people talk about the, the terror that refugees very often feel you know from terrible circumstances they've, they've been in when they felt they had to leave their own home country and then all of this uncertainty and so on do, do you find that that stays with settled refugees as a very great reality for a long long time I mean that, that very present feeling of danger, even though they're now presumably in a much safer place. Absolutely. I mean, many, many refugees have, have suffered incredible trauma, and that's not overcome when you board an airplane and come to America. It, it takes a long time, if, if it's ever possible, really to overcome that trauma. But with the right kind of care and support, patience in a community, understanding and sensitivity, it's possible for people to live full um, and contributing lives, mm-hmm. even with that trauma. Mm-hmm. And you find, too, that sometimes that trauma doesn't 
come about right away. You know, you're so busy. Um, the federal resettlement program is a 30-day program that can extend up to 90 days. So although our refugee caseworkers all speak the languages of the refugees they resettle and they understand the culture, you know, and some of the adjustments they need to go through, that helps a little bit. Um, but then after 90 days, that federal resettlement process is ended. So you need those support programs to help them adjust and fully integrate, but not only integrate, enhance the community. Mm -hmm. So we have our English classes and employment classes and cultural orientation classes that, that continue to help support them as they need. And a lot of times, too, uh, if there's some refugees, that, that trauma may come out in a year or two years or five years by signs of alcoholism or you know, mental disorders and things like that. Yeah, we've been talking a little bit about what, uh, what the experiences are from the point of view of the refugee, but let's talk for a minute, too, about those people who volunteer to teach English or to help someone go to the DMV and get uh, a driver's license um, and an ID. Um, what's the feedback you get from the people who volunteer with your organizations about you know, the richness this adds to their own experience? Alexis, you have sure, a Sure, I, uh -huh. I can start. Um, you know, most of our volunteers are actually attorneys. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as we are primarily a legal services organization, um, and most of our attorneys are coming from corporate law firms or in-house counsel at companies. And they've never worked on immigration cases, let alone asylum cases. Um, you know, and, and we do a lot of outreach um, and have really fantastic partners um, in the Chicago area and nationally. And they say it's the most rewarding thing they've ever done. And that that's why they got their law degree. And this is, you know, that this is really what they want to be doing. Um, and, and they will come back for more and more cases. And, you know, that's, that's really what we like to see. So we've gotten yeah. tremendous feedback. Oh, that's great. And, and from the two of you? Well, we've even heard here at this conference today from people who volunteered working with refugees saying they always feel they get more back themselves than what they're able to give. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it does. It, it changes lives. Um, many lives, to have that personal connection that, that is deep and long-lasting, is remembered both by the volunteer and by the refugee for years to come. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I agree. And not only that, but you, you're able to learn about cultures and peoples and languages, you know, in your hometown. Mm -hmm. So it's really an amazing experience. Well, boy, I want to say thank you to all of you for coming up to share some of these stories with us. I appreciate it very much. Anne-Marie Kudlatz and um, uh, Linda Hartke and Alexis Perlmutter, thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. So as you know, this is World Canvas from International Programs, and uh, I'm Joan Kerr. Once again, this program is about refugees in the heartland, and it's been organized by the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights and International Programs. Uh, we invite you to join us as a member of the live audience for our next program on May 3rd, when the topic is Remaking the Body, Identity and Body Modification. All World Canvas programs are broadcast on UITV and KRUI-FM, and they can be accessed anywhere in the world through iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So in this next segment, I'm going to introduce you to Fatuma Elmi. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit from, uh, in this next oh, 20 minutes or so, from individuals who have personal refugee stories to share and uh, as I've mentioned, Fatuma Elmi is our guest in this next segment. Uh, we'll ask you to tell us your story, but you are originally from Somalia. 
Um, and Fatuma is an employment supervisor with Lutheran Social Services in Minneapolis, where she helps newly resettled refugees find jobs and adjust to life in the U.S. She currently serves on the board of directors for the American Development Center, assisting African refugees who wish to purchase houses and open small businesses. Um, so, uh, you've come here from Minneapolis, but before that, you've made a long journey from Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in 1991 uh, with double en- I had double entry visa, and I never planned to stay. And uh, as uh, like any uh, asylee, um, uh, I was just lucky enough to, before my uh, and visa stay, visit visa expired, uh, the President Bush senior uh, allowed all Somali because of the civil war uh, to stay temporary protection and and that uh, it helped me to be able to apply uh, what they call asylum uh, although it took uh, uh, five years and to get just to get sit to the in front of the judge and and uh, get approval and have a within another a year and a half to uh, to get a green card, so-called the green card. So uh, it was not a choice for me, and uh, uh, I had a job in Middle East, the United Arab Emirates. I just uh, decided to go back wrong time uh, to my country, and uh, and uh, and here I was. Uh, never planned to uh, leave far away. Uh, uh, my uh, early uh, thirty plan to what they call early retirement, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I had to start from zero, you know, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and I'm glad that I did because I was able to, uh, to welcome and to help my refugee community uh, all over the world. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a, uh, I was volunteering a couple of years uh, helping refugee women to get a job, and, and then I was hired by LSS, Lutheran Social Service. Uh, to be able to help, continue helping, which I, till today, I do. Uh, what I like to emphasize, it's uh, one particular thing. Uh, community, Somali community in Minneapolis grow uh, for one reason only. Uh, they were looking for, uh, to support their family and to get a job. And that time, in 1993, uh, uh, the only job that they could get was uh, working in Turkey plant in the Marshall and gradually uh, uh, the, the we grow, and, uh, and we come in a culture where we don't expect the government to help us. So uh, right now in, a, in Somali community in Minneapolis, uh, you will see how many couple of uh, what they call a mall, Somali mall, we call Somali mall. And uh, uh, people ask where they got this job, I mean, uh, this money to open account. So, uh, but uh, in back home in the culture, um, a woman, when she gets married, uh, the husband assigned a budget, monthly budget, uh, which is to support, you know, her daily expenses. So a good mother, what she will do, she will save from that without telling him and go into something called microfinance uh, within either her own family or friends or community neighborhood. So uh, uh, which, what it does this uh, so-called microfinance uh, is that, like example, uh, I pay monthly uh, 
designed one person to collect, let's say, 10 people monthly, uh, $100. So end of the month, uh, when the money is pulled, we give it to someone. So that person, uh, either you can uh, prepare you know, your daughter's wedding, uh, family support, or you can also add uh, your daily expenses, or you can buy jewelry uh, for yourself, or maybe you can start a small business. So that's how the community in Minneapolis grow. Uh, so and it started with women, but now it's also for men. So uh, that's, I'm very proud of that uh, because it's not something that uh, people know. Uh, we call, um, we call uh, in Somali, because it's the, uh, the word started in uh, Mogadishu, which is the capital. Uh, uh, it's Italian. The word is Italian. So someone today asked me, and I, and I said, no, it's original Italian. Uh, and she said, well, I thought it was Somali because we are the one who use so in Somali, we, again, we use it in Arabic uh, language. So it's, one, it has one particular name, uh, 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 we call ayuto, which is help in Latin Italian language, uh, which is we collect and we support each other. So what basically the community was able to, uh, to grow and to start business in that so-called uh, microfinance. Uh, for me, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, the day I started uh, till today, what I do is I place a job, uh, all kind of refugee, whether Somali or uh, Bosnian or even uh, what they call uh, uh, Iraqis, uh, wherever, wherever the, you know, the resettlement of my agency does, uh, we have something called the eight months for refugee uh, singles within that month they have to be able to be self-sufficiency and get a job and so on. So uh, for the family, after uh, 90 days, they move to the county. And according to state uh, uh, Minnesota, we have something called the Minnesota Family Investment Program. And then they, through that, they are required to do the job search. So uh, it's not easy. Uh, because again, uh, the women, uh, single mothers, uh, they don't, uh, they maybe, you know, in during the 20 something years spending refugee camp, nobody prepared them to come here in a couple of months to be able to self sufficiency. So, what I basically do is uh, I teach them once in group, uh, once a week, what I do is like I teach them how to write their address, their social security, and uh, their name, so they can, uh, whenever I, I place them job, at least when they get their check, they can sign. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not easy, but it's something that uh, we, it's, uh, it's, uh, the program is required for them to, mm -hmm. to be able to do. Uh, um, uh, I have a couple of uh, what they call a companies who is very supportive of my program. Uh, before the civil, I mean, before the September 11, uh, it was very easy to go to the approach to the employer and ask them uh, to have in the in the premises something called the English work uh, world of work, yeah. which is one hour after they finish their. Uh, assignment, they will be a teacher will come and teach them how they can communicate within uh, their supervisor and the place that they work in. So, uh, but 
that was support from the employer. Uh, right now, uh, we don't, uh, because again, it's a mainstream market, the job market is not, uh, is very tight. Mm -hmm. However, I had a couple of uh, my contact in my years that I was in the field and who is still supporting me. Um, it's not easy because we have also challenge of uh, dress code and so on, mm -hmm. but we do our best and, uh, and they are also willing to be able to, uh, uh, to be self-sufficient and, and be productive and a good citizen for the country and show them also for their kids how proud they can be, so the mother or the father having a, you know, yeah. support in the family, like back home, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I always say uh, thank you for everybody, especially the young people in the college who comes and volunteer uh, the refugee support and uh, mentoring and so on, or teaching them how to take bus when they come. Uh, and I also uh, thank for uh, uh, agencies to uh, to be able, and UHCR, uh, who has not much support from one as we come here because uh, the life is headache and you get busy, but we have to go back and say, you know, what we can do uh, in order to support you so you can bring more people and not people allowing to spend 20, 30 years in the refugee camp. Yeah. So, again, uh, I thank you to everybody. Wow. Well, thank you, Fatuma Omi. We're very happy to have you here, and, thank and you. congratulations on the good work. Thank you for thank giving you. us the chance. Yes. Thank you very much. So now I'm inviting up uh, two guests, uh, Amir Hadzic and his wife, Amy Weissman. Amir Hadzic is uh, the men's soccer program coach at Mount Mercy University here in Iowa. He's also assistant director of international programs and student services at Mount Mercy. Uh, originally from Sarajevo, Bosnia, he fled his home to escape the war in the former Yugoslavia, spent time in a Croatian refugee camp, and was resettled as a refugee in the U.S. in 1995. So welcome, Amir. Nice to have you here. Mm -hmm. And Amy Weissman, many of you who have been at the conference certainly know Amy. Uh, Amy is the Associate Director of the UI Center for Human Rights and also the Principal Organizer of the Massive Refugees in the Heartland Conference, currently underway. Uh, Amy has extensive background as a humanitarian aid worker and a resettlement caseworker. A graduate of the UI College of Law, she has assisted in proceedings before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague, as well as other legal cases involving the violation of human rights. Amy met her now husband, Amir Hadzic, when he was in a Croatian refugee camp and she was an aid worker. So we're going to turn to you and ask you to, to speak for a few minutes about your story, starting first with you, Amir. You were growing up, normal kid in Yugoslavia, and had a certain kind of vision of your future life, and it's taken quite a different turn. Yes, we, we in a, in a, uh, Sarajevo is, is a beautiful city in a former Yugoslavia, now Bosnia, that was multicultural, multi-ethnic society, always kind of uh, throughout the history border between East and West, and uh, we kind of uh, always took pride of living there, and it was a wonderful place. We hosted Winter Olympic Games in 1984, and I remember those days being a, a high school kid who was trying to, just to make this event special, and uh, uh, it was just a wonderful experience, and you think you're the entire world is in your hands and just eight years later people start shooting at you and you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So the, the war started basically 
Yugoslavia was a communist country, but not like in uh, Eastern Europe. It was kind of lots of uh, elements of so, uh, so, uh, socialism as well. And uh, we had the fir first free elections in 1990, and uh, all these politicians promised people freedom and uh, prosperity and 21st century and whatnot. And, uh, uh, one thing led to another, and basically Bosnia was in, in a particularly tough situation because it was in the middle of Yugoslavia, and uh, people lived there for centuries. There were over 50% of mixed marriages in which Orthodox Christian married Christian, or we have lots of Jewish people, and also uh, Ottoman Empire was there for about 500 years, and lots of people took Islam as... as uh, so, you know, it was kind of our melting pot in Yugoslavia. and. Uh, so war started in 92. We couldn't believe, uh, especially Sarajevans, that would ever happen there. I remember my first experiences uh, taking, being taken out from, from a trolley that was going in one part of town when people with the masks came with the guns and every, uh, ordered everybody to lie on the floor and, and uh, kicked us out and uh, asked us to cross the river in the eastern part of Sarajevo. We had kind of like eastern, western, as, as much as uh, here in Iowa City. Mm -hmm. So... So it was really difficult, and uh, people tried to crush the barricades and kind of uh, unify the, the city and, and, and country, but it was not possible, especially when people started dying. It was worse and worse. So conditions were horrible. We lived under siege. Sarajevo is in a, in a valley surrounded by mountains, and uh, there's no safe place to run. There's no uh, place to go, you know, you, you, every day, you know, Tens or hundreds of people were dying, you know, from mortars or, or sniper fire. Uh, in one statistics, you know, we had about two, three thousand people dying from sniper fire, and many of them children. And mm -hmm. I always try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who would really shoot a child, mm -hmm. especially not knowing his child Serb or Croat or Bosnian, because yeah. we all look alike. And, yeah. and, uh, so, anyways, uh, conditions were bad. The electricity was cut, gas, water. So. Regular life would be you wake up in the morning, you don't know what life will bring you, and you uh, kind of divide things in, within a family. You know, my father would go and fight some woods because it's cold as much as in Iowa here, and uh, somebody will go for water, and somebody will try to trade, like in 15th century, you know, yeah. a piece of uh, wardrobe for a bag of woods, you know, and survive that day. And uh, people build the improvised stoves, uh, lines for water where hundreds of people, you just pray that mortar will not come at the same time when you are waiting there. And Usually the walk would be four or five miles, and then, of course, we lived on the eighth floor, so <laughs> there's no electricity, so you need to carry all that mm. thing every day, you know. Uh, so it was, uh, in addition to shootings and everything, it was a question, really, of, of luck or destiny. Would, would, you, would you be dead or, or alive yeah. the next day? So after two and a half, three years, I, I, I really... I realized, well, I don't want to live like this anymore, and, and I, I really need to find a way to go out. The only way out from Sarajevo, ironically, was uh, through the airport tunnel. Uh, people dig the tunnel underneath the airport where UN soldiers were stationed, and it's about half-mile uh, ordeal in which you go in a really primitive tunnel. There's nearby river, mud is through your knees. You could pack two bags of your belongings, and uh, that's all that they will let you go. Uh, go out with, and uh, it's dark pitch, you know, pitch dark, and, and uh, you kind of hit the person in front of you, you are bended, uh, you don't know if you will get out alive, so it was uh, really 
special experience. From there, uh, guides waiting at the end of the tunnel would take us to Mount Igman, where in, uh, during Olympic Games we had uh, ski jump competitions, and uh, in complete silence and with no lights whatsoever, we would uh, climb. It's about 10,000 feet mountain, and when I escaped, it was early December, so it was snow and mud and everything else, and uh, buses would wait for us at the end of uh, on top of mountain, and uh, they took us to safety. So I escaped to Croatia, which was nearby country. I remember leaving the bus and jumping in a ferry that goes to one of the islands of beautiful Adriatic Sea and just feeling that sea that was really calm and going out from the town and siege was a really special feeling for me. From there, I wanted to escape as far as possible. I went to a part of Croatia named Istria, which is very close to Italian border on the north. And the uh, place name was Pula, and I went to refugee camp there. They have several refugee camps uh, that were former military barracks, just converted uh, into refugee camps. I, I, I think we were lucky because many refugees mm -hmm. live under tents or cardboard houses or whatnot. And uh, first experience was, was really bad because, you know, you live in a small classroom-sized room divided by sheets with another five, six families, and... You could imagine people blame each other who is responsible for war. Uh, there's no privacy. There are people who are drinking or using drugs and whatnot. And uh, it wasn't pleasant, you know, but uh, somehow you go through it, you know, that uh, the worst days are behind you. And uh, I was looking to go somewhere in, in Europe. Europe was closed at that time for refugees. And I, uh, U.S. just opened their program in 95. I remember going to interview in... Uh, Croatian capital Zagreb, and uh, successfully passed everything they told me. Wow, flying in July, and uh, <laughs> next thing, next thing I know, I had uh, that IOM bag, which is International Organization for Migration, that every refugee has, and uh, in complete secrecy, actually, we left. In a, we didn't know where we are flying. I just knew that the cousin who sponsored me, who lived in New York City. Uh, I knew that that was my final destination. So I flew through Milan to New York and uh, came to New York City, and uh, I was there for a uh, couple of months, and it was a great experience, surreal some, somehow. You know, five days earlier, you are collecting rain to, to flush the toilet, and next thing you know, you are in New York City and yeah. next to Statue of Liberty. Yeah. So it was a uh, uh, really... Unbelievable experience. I, I remember being in New York City. The only negative thing was in Sarajevo, we needed to be at home at 10 o'clock p.m. That was kind of kind of place where nobody can be on the streets. And I came to New York, and it was about like 9.30 in the evening, and I really wanted to walk, just to walk. I, I was uh, uh, asking my cousin, so can I go outside and walk? And he's like, well, we live in Queens. It's not a good neighborhood. And I really didn't like <laughs> So I was like, I came to the country that preaches uh, freedom and everything. I cannot even walk. So anyways, uh, after spending a few weeks in, uh, in, in New York, a few months, and uh, I get a call from Amy's mom because Amy and I worked uh, in a refugee camp closely, uh, especially with a little group of kids uh, uh, forming a soccer team, which was really special. And then we, uh, uh, we kind of continued that friendship, you know, throughout the months or years that Amy was there. And uh, Amy's mom called me from Iowa City and said, Amy's coming back if you want to visit us in Iowa City. Yeah. Uh, that would be great. And I was like, okay, you know, why, why not? Mm -hmm. And 
I arrived to Chicago and Amy was there and we kind of were driving to Iowa and there was corn everywhere. And <laughs> soybeans, because Bosnia is really pretty much like Colorado or, oh, or Utah, yeah. you know. And, uh, and the very next day, speaking of destiny, there was the advertisement in the Gazette, Cedar Rapids Gazette, about soccer coach at Mount Mercy no. at that time, college, you know. And I, I, I said, people play soccer here? I didn't know because I played. <laughs> and I came in the right time because U.S. was hosting the World Cup in 94, so they used some resources to spread the, the soccer kind of throughout the country. And uh, I decided to stay. And actually, I interviewed for a job, and they offered me a job right away. And uh, I called my cousin in New York, and I said, I'm staying in Iowa. Said, Iowa, really? You couldn't believe it. Uh, but I, I found it really special place just because people were so friendly and welcoming from day one. It wasn't fake or pretentious or, you know, everybody yeah. was really, really great. And, and uh, from there, you know, uh, I'm here now 17, 18 years, I can't believe it. And I, I call Iowa, Iowa City particularly yeah. home. Oh, well, th- thank you for, for running through all of that for us. And, and Amy, um, so we heard a little bit about how you had met and knew one another um, in those days when you were in the, working in the refugee camp. But as a spouse of someone who, you weren't married at the time, but you, know, you were here as, as Amir was getting settled and starting this new job and so on. And then you're also a lawyer working in human rights. What are some of the, the biggest issues that you have either experienced yourself or you have seen other people uh, fight with in order to get you know, appropriate attention? for the situation they're in. Right, right. Well, I noticed that Amir very uh, conveniently uh, uh, didn't discuss uh, our, our meeting in the, in, in, <laughs> in the refugee camp, uh, which is uh, interesting, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, it's been an you know, incredible journey of, of my own to, to be a part of Amir's journey uh, uh, coming to this country and uh, experiencing through him the uh, adjustment and transition and challenges that come along with that kind of uh, traumatic journey. Because uh, uh, although Amir is uh, uh, um, someone who is marked by... In- Incredible optimism. There's no doubt that uh, everyone who flees from a place of war and persecution carries with them uh, a great deal of loss and a great deal of sadness and a great deal of trauma. Um, And people find different ways to work through that. Um, Some are are very productive and some less so um, for themselves and their communities. Um, I'm always absolutely inspired and amazed by the incredibly powerful, uh, productive ways that people do find to channel that, uh, yeah. that those experiences, and for the most part, uh, use that as an, as as a, a part of building their new lives mm-hmm. here. Uh, it's a part of the resiliency that they they bring. Mm-hmm to their new communities that's extremely important to recognize, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was living in, in, in Croatia and in a refugee camp and getting to know Amir and many other people um, as a young person at that time, I suppose, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, what, what struck me as the most pervasive uh, 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 emotion for, for me was this sense of loss of a future or this living in limbo. This, this is the sense that uh, you've left behind uh, what you've known all your life and what you intended to carry on with. What's coming next, you don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not defined for you, uh, and to the extent that it, you want to define it, it's sometimes being defined by other people. Uh, you're, you're, you have a lack of control, a great sense of lack of control um, over your own destiny. Mm-hmm. And that it takes a long time. That's part of this long welcoming process that Linda was referring to. I think a a long time to rebuild that sense of identity, that sense of uh, uh, direction and control. Um, And uh, I mean, that's something that uh, I I have to say, I think Amir uh, processed remarkably quickly. uh, And I've noted that others struggle much over a longer period of time mm-hmm. uh, with, with those issues. Um, uh, it's a, you know, refugees are real people who represent a cross-section of their, uh, of, of the countries and the communities from which they came, and uh, every person carries their own um, uh, potential and their own um, uh, concerns and their own... Um, uh, uh, you know, con- problems that, that have to be worked through, whether or not they uh, were in their own country or mm-hmm. elsewhere. They carry the, you know, that history and uh, uh, that identity with them, and it changes as, as they go. Uh, it's lost a little bit along the way, I think, in the refugee process, and then hopefully reemerges in a new place where there are people there to support them and, and um, provide opportunity for them to find, find that control again. So... It's a rather uh, abstract response, but I, uh, I, uh, I, I noticed that uh, for Amir, um, uh, you know, for a long time, just as a very physical reminder, for a very long time, um, uh, you know, we, we couldn't go to Fourth of July fireworks. We couldn't. We, we stayed far away from anything that might remind him of. Uh, um, bombs or gunfire, and uh, you know he had uh, just a very, very physical, startled response whenever uh, a, a strange noise would emerge. Uh, you know, as as many people who suffer post-traumatic stress-related concerns who've been in a war situation feel, and that took a long time to. Uh, overcome. You still don't like fireworks very much. But you've, we've, well, actually, we've been able to go I, I asked Edward before we came in tonight, I, I asked him, you know, does this, does the experience, that refugee experience, that whole traumatic time, even though it's 15, 16 years in the past now, is that still a part of your, your everyday life? You either flash back or you're just, you know, conscious of it. Do you still feel that very deeply? I do, you know, maybe not to the extent that I was, you know, just when I arrived, it, it fades away a little bit, you know, kind of after several years. But uh, uh, I, I still remember days, you know, as a refugee, and I try to take the, the, the best out of it in, in a way that I, uh, I try to enjoy in the little things a little bit more than I would probably if I wasn't a refugee. I, I 
enjoy a simple walk or going to movie theater or something that we take for granted, you know, in, in our lives. So uh, part of me always, when I'm unhappy about something, I just remember where mm -hmm. I was and, and that mm. keeps me going, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, remembering refugees, you know, for me, the toughest part, I mean, there were lots of bad things that were happening, you know, uh, in the refugee camp, but the, the thing that I carry with me is, is this group of little kids that Amy and I worked with, many of them orphans and many of them with really troubled families that didn't have anything to do in that refugee camp. And we kind of try, had this idea of trying a little soccer team, you know, and, and uh, Amy's mom here found some sponsors. They sent some jerseys there and uh, the, just to see their joy, you know, of, of, of doing something together and feeling as a part of something meaningful was, was really a powerful experience for me. And uh, ironically, as it sounds, it was tough for me to leave Pula for U.S. I, I, I knew that better life awaits for me here, but, uh, you know, I had a hard time leaving Sarajevo, so when I was in Pula, I, I asked people, please don't come to the place where I'm living because I, I really cannot mm -hmm. handle another sure. goodbye, another, sure. you know. Sure. And uh, Pula is, is a, a strange place in a way of, of having bus stations. Iowa is not the only one. <laughs> so we have, uh, you know, in Pula there's a tunnel where buses kind of come on one way, they pick up passengers, and then they move out on the other way. So I came to that tunnel and, and I was putting my bags and I, I already felt like, wow, what life is bringing now, I, I really didn't know. And uh, I said, thankfully, nobody is here to share emotion. I, I can go through this. I put my glasses. I try to look cool and not think about it. And uh, just around the corner, I hear a song that I really liked as, as a child from one band, you know, that we kind of all cherished mm -hmm. in Yugoslavia. And I was like, wow, look at this. This is really destiny. I, somebody is playing my favorite song. And sure enough, there was... a group of refugees with uh, guitars and everybody else. And, wow. and uh, especially those little kids, you know, they were, even now, it's, yeah. it's very strange. Yeah, so, so those kids, you know, would hug me and say, please don't go and, you know, you kind of leave your part. Yeah, sure. With those kids. Sure. So. Yeah. so, you know, I try to remember from refugee camp always something positive. So this picture and wondering where those kids are and yeah. what their lives Kind of are looking right now, you know. It's, 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 well, hopefully it's they've big. found a good place like yes. you have here. And, and thank you both for being with us this afternoon. Wonderful to have met you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Yes. Thank you. So I would like to continue with this question of what might be done to improve the way nations respond to refugee crises with our next two guests. And uh, joining us now, you'll recognize Larry Young of the UNHCR, and Michelle Garnett-McKenzie is our other guest, and she is Advocacy Director at the Advocates for Human Rights in Minneapolis, which is, by the way, the same organization that Dupinder Mayo works for. And uh, so welcome to both of you. And, and um, so... What can we say, Michelle, uh, as Advocacy Director, what are some of the things we can do uh, on an international level, nation to nation, to make this refugee situation better? Well, thank you so much. That is just a, a wonderful question, and it really brings out uh, this, you know, the reality of this situation, that it's not just about uh, receiving, but it's also about push factors and pull factors. And that migration at heart uh, is a human experience. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we haven't had national borders for that long, but we've had human migration for millennia, right? So, um, so it is something that we need to be concerned about with our neighbors uh, right here and our neighbors around the world. Um, UNHCR works so hard in countries to make sure that the refugees in the country of first asylum have security and peace, but the, propel- the propelling forces need to be quelled as well. And uh, so many of the uh, folks that we work with at the advocates, the asylum seekers, democracy advocates, um, people are really seeking to make their homelands the best place that they can be. And unfortunately, we know that repression and oppression and war and all sorts of harms can come, but we see such resilience mm-hmm. uh, from those people. I, I know we can make a better, better world for them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that they don't, once someone gets out and finds a safer place, they don't forget what everybody back in their former home is going through. They really do want to Absolutely, that absolutely. And we have really begun as uh, telecommunications have tightened up, as you can tweet and you can uh, email and you can have a cell phone with your family and friends back in a refugee camp. I've seen that growing connection and that continuing connection. Um, At the Advocates, we've actually embarked on a diaspora uh, project that is working with diaspora communities in Minnesota and in the United States to work on human rights conditions in their own countries. Mm -hmm. People are so connected. And you don't leave your life behind. Mm -hmm. Um, As Amir said, they're human beings that he had to walk away from, and he hasn't forgotten those people, friends and family and colleagues, and the country that you love needs that support, and we see people continue to be engaged. It's very exciting uh, what the possibilities are for that uh, as we move forward. Yeah. So with the Advocates for uh, Human Rights, do you, are you in constant contact with members of elected governments? Um, we try to be. Yeah. Um, the Advocates for Human Rights is, is based in Minnesota, and our primary um, work is in uh, both the state with our federal elected officials, and then on working on human rights conditions around the world um, on a variety of subjects, actually, uh, including refugees and immigrants. But uh, it's a, it is a constant process. And one of the things that we know our elected officials you know, struggle with, and we have, we have great representation, uh, but it's the minutia and the details. And the, sometimes uh, through the rabbit hole or whatever, the, through the looking glass down the rabbit hole sort of situation that the immigration and refugee process can be, um, it seems like a pretty simple process when Larry showed us a diagram this morning, uh, but then he told us that the real diagram in his office is a wall-long uh, <laughs> scroll with many boxes and arrows. And, and that, uh, that process, that refugee resettlement process, is one of the easier ways of migration um, mm-hmm. in terms of, of having a centralized system and, yeah. and some planning involved. So um, our elected officials really need the, the real stories uh, the real information about what doesn't work and what does mm-hmm. so that we can really have our immigration policy, our refugee policy reflect the values of our country. Yeah. Uh, that every person here has a, is a person and should live their lives with dignity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, would you sort of help us understand what the heavy burden is of the uh, UNHCR um, feeding, providing shelter for people? We've tried to talk a little bit about getting settled in this country, but an emergency arises somewhere, and you suddenly have hundreds of thousands of people who need safety, who need something to eat, uh, health care. Well, it's certainly a, a real challenge for UNHCR is uh, if you think of taking care of 15 
million people, and those are just the refugees, and we also assist internally displaced and stateless people and others around the world. It's really a huge challenge. Uh, UNHCR, uh, first of all, we get uh, very little money from the UN. We have to raise the money every year uh, from donor countries. Happy to say that the United States is, uh, at the international level, a very strong donor to helping us on the program. But the costs and challenges are enormous. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of, let's just take Syria, for example, where in March we passed a million refugees fleeing from Syria. In countries like Lebanon, are hosting 400,000 refugees. If I was to put that in proportion for the U.S., that would be like in one year, all of Canada, every single person ending up in the United States. Wow. Yeah. And think of what the strain would be, you know, trying to take care of that. Mm -hmm. And so UNHCR's job of working with countries, and countries bear huge burdens themselves, mm -hmm. keeping the doors open. And that's one of the things UNHCR works hardest on, is to work with countries to make sure refugees can get out. Because if refugees can't get out, well, we've seen what's happened in certain countries and in history when refugees can't leave. Mm -hmm. So for us, the challenges are keeping those borders open, making sure people have the essential services, food, water, shelter. At this point, every day we're having to find hundreds or thousands of tents just alone to open up for Syrian refugees. And besides Syria, we also have conflicts in Mali, a very huge conflict, southern Sudan, Congo, uh, DRC, around the world. And trying to sort of maintain those as well as all of the other very long-standing refugee situations. And you heard from refugees today, sometimes who have been refugees 10, 20. We, a few years ago, we were settled refugees uh, from Burundi, who had been refugees for 30 years living in camps. So it's, it really is, continues to be a huge burden. I, and I'd say the U.S. Uh, and the State Department have been a strong partner at uh, trying to keep that level of support in tough economic times, mm -hmm. you know, when there's a lot of competing demands on resources, and we know people have been hurting in the U.S. as well. But to realize that that uh, contribution is life-saving overseas. It's an investment in the future. And one thing that I also is, even though I'm a resettlement person and I spend most of my time promoting it, but to let people know that only about one out of 300 refugees in the world gets resettled. Wow. I know a lot of times people think it's a much higher number than that. So most refugees have to be helped where they're at. They're not going to be able to come to the U.S. or Canada or Australia but they're going to need help where they're at. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of what I would think are bright spots, that there's good support from many nations for, for the UNHCR efforts and, and good support still from the U.S. Are there other kind of bright spots on the horizon? Are there some things that you think are working really quite well, considering the fact that a crisis is a crisis because you sometimes don't have much warning or any warning, something really catastrophic happens, and within just a few days, people are flooding over the border. Um, are, are, there, are there processes in place now that you feel kind of, you know, pretty good about, that you can say are successes? Well, I would say when you work in a, our area, and uh, where every day you sort of don't hear the bright spots. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I think... I, I'm it, thinking of some while you're... <laughs> <laughs> Keep dancing. 
But I, you know, I, I think we do see successes around the world, and we've seen you know, the possibility open up for uh, repatriation when peace you know, prevails in countries. Uh, you had Alekwek here, and we have now have a country of South Sudan. And even though there's issues there, still things have improved for many Sudanese, uh, some who've been able to go back to South Sudan, uh, some with Afghanistan have gone back. And of course, we have many, many individual success stories, and, and certainly resettlement is just filled with those you know, people who've come and started new lives and really you know, uh, are contributing to their new communities. And, uh, but I, I, I think that you know, one of the things for me, a bright spot if I return to Syria, you know, is to sort of to see countries keeping their borders open under tremendous pressure. When you think that just a couple of years ago, Syria was hosting hundreds of thousands yeah. of Iraqi refugees. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, Iraq is now taking in hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. So I think that seeing that sort of reciprocity mm -hmm. in time of crisis, mm -hmm. for me, you know, gives a little bit of a bright spot in the mm -hmm. world. Thank you. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that um, as we've looked back, uh, we've been in, in business for just 30 years. We're not nearly as venerable as the UNHCR. But um, as a small organization working with asylum seekers here in the Midwest, uh, we've seen a real change um, in who comes and how they come. And we see that people who were fleeing for their lives 30 years ago have rebuilt their lives. Um, we had an amazing story. Um, we also work with volunteer attorneys uh, to provide free legal services. and. Uh, one of our volunteers um, found out tragically that his mother was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And she said, she called to, you know, him to share this news, and, and she said, my doctor is so-and-so. And he said, that was the woman I represented. He had represented his mother's oncologist in getting asylum. That people do move forward. Individually, the resilience is incredible. Mm -hmm. And also, country by country. You know, we don't see the same situations as we did. There is peace. Today, uh, we've seen many Somalis returning from Minnesota um, to try to start new businesses, think about how they can contribute to the home country, continue to negotiate things here. But uh, as we know, refugees always have you know, what uh, some of our Liberian friends say, a house with two rooms. Um, they have a room here in the United States, and they have a room back home. And, uh, and that's just a part of their lives. Mm -hmm. So they can rebuild but never forget, mm -hmm. um, move forward but never look, you know, stop looking behind. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a preference given to uh, a refugee who may be coming with family members or a preference given to a refugee who's uh, a solo individual, do you know, in terms of determining who might be okay to? Uh... Well, for both UNHCR and the US, uh, there isn't a, exactly a preference that would mm -hmm. be given one way or the other. Certainly if somebody has a very close relative, like if you have a split spouse, spouses or a parent split from their uh, minor children, that'll be a priority for mm -hmm. resettlement. Um, at UNHR, if we're referring an individual and we found for maybe some other reasons, maybe they had protection problems, and in doing that they say, well, my uh, cousin also lives in the U.S., we would probably look at the U.S. first because we know if that person can join their cousin, they're probably going to adjust better. Mm -hmm. They'll have some more support. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there wouldn't be, I'd, I'd say the U.S. program, uh, as we've heard on the overseas side, is, a, I think, a fairly uh, generous program. They'll look at many different types of cases of, of people. They don't look at things, for example, uh, at 
what we might call their integration potential, which I think is a great thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. because I think if they had looked at my great-grandfather's integration potential, <laughs> I might not be here. Uh, he, was, he was an artist, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> but, uh, and because the U.S. program, what I think is what we find with many refugees, we don't know what their potential is until they get to a place mm -hmm. like the U.S. and you have opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because if you live in a refugee camp your whole life, you have, what's your potential? Nothing, yeah. I, I mean, to do. And I think that's why you see so many refugees and if I could just add one bright spot, I, I'd just like to, just as a personal thing, uh, maybe about 12 years ago or 13 years ago, I and a few people in Washington were writing uh, the, basically what you might call the rules and selection process that was going to be for a group of these boys who were in Sudan, uh, had fled Sudan, the so-called lost boys. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, they were just sort of a theoretical thing to us. And when they started coming and we visited them around the country and we saw you know, how well they were doing, now I'm still meeting with the Lost Boys and because many of them are going back to South Sudan to set up <coughs> programs to help rebuild the country. And I think that's a great example of the potential that you yeah. can find in refugees. Absolutely. Gosh, thank you both so much for being up here with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, we'll now go to our final guest. Very excited to have Kao Kalia Yang join us now. Uh, she is a Hmong American writer from Minnesota. Uh, she was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. Kalia and her family came to America as refugees of war in 1987 when she was six years old. Kalia is a graduate of Carleton College and Columbia University's MFA program, and her first book called The Late Homecomer, a Hmong family memoir, was the winner of the 2009 Minnesota Book Award for Creative Nonfiction and Memoir, as well as Book of the Year. Lovely to have you with us, Kalia. Thank you Thank for you. having me. Thank you so much. So where do we begin with your story? Uh, I can begin anywhere, I guess. I want to <laughs> thank all of you for being here with all of us. It's been a long program, and you know, your presence here really fortifies my heart. It's scary to stand up here with, you know, after such a, hearing such insights and uh, such a diversity of experiences. I'm really here as a child refugee, if that makes sense. So my experiences will come from that perspective. I was born in 1980 to Hmong parents in Bambinai refugee camp. For the first six years of my life, I lived on 400 acres. We got food about three days a week because we were rationed. Um, after me, my mom had six miscarriages because she couldn't have, uh, she didn't have the nutrition needed to feed herself. Now, if my mom's eating something and I see it or my sister sees it, she gives it to us from her mouth. This is um, my understanding of food and mealtime. So, so that's the background I come from. You know, everybody would die around my birthday because I was a New Year baby, December 17, 1980. And all these adults around me who I loved, they would kill themselves. Suicide was the number one cause of death in Mamunai refugee camp because they were hungry for a home. They remembered a home beyond the fence that kept me in. And so there'd be all these cries, why are you dying here? Why are you dying in this place that does not want you? Get up, get up so that we can go home. I used to ask my grandma what home was, and she'd tell me a story of Laos, this place across a river. I'd never seen a river. The only river I knew was the open sewage canals in the camp. My grandma would tell me about a future in America, an imagined place. My father used to take me to the tops of the tall trees, hold me up in his arms, and he'd say, your father is holding you up to see the world. 
One day you will walk on the horizons your father has never seen. Now he'd hold my hand and tell me, the size of your hand and your feet will not dictate your life journey. We look at puppies being born and their eyes would still be closed. And my dad would tell me, they can't open their eyes because your world is so bright, it's so beautiful. And so that's the kind of place I come from. You know, in my memories, when I dream, I dream back to Bambi Night Refugee Camp. And I was only six when we came to America. But in America for so long, we've heard um, different perspectives, but I speak from my experience. You know, people would ask me, where are you from? Why don't you go back where you come from? You know, there is no Hmong land in the map of the world. When I was a little girl, it used to be enough to point to Mongolia and say, maybe, you know, maybe that's where I come from. One of my cousins got his American citizenship, and he changed his name to Bruce Lee. So it was easier to say I'm Bruce Lee's cousin than to explain a homeland I couldn't locate in the world. No, I, I, to this day, I, my father wakes up from dreams, and he's shaking. His hands are shaking, and I ask him, why is, your, why is your hand shaking? And my father tells me I had a dream, and I was in Laos again. And my mother and I are on our way to the garden, and we see the rock that she always sits on to feed me. And so she sits on the rock. I can hear the rockets coming. I can, see, I can see that where we're sitting is going to explode. And so I start to run in my dream, and I hear my mother telling me to go faster. The rock explodes, and there's a remnant of it lodged in my palm. You can't see it, but I can feel the weight of it cutting through. This is the life that, um, that I grew up in, the people I know and the people I love. My aunts and my uncles, even in the heat of summer, they wear clothes that cover the scars on their body. So I grew up in America thinking that I was going to become a doctor, that I could heal what was broken in the bodies of those who loved me. But somewhere along the way, I grew to believe that what was broken was their hearts. And if it was words that gave me windows into those hearts, then perhaps with words I could salvage what was left. A lot of the people in my family and my community uh, around my mom and dad's age, they don't speak English. Many of them don't even write, because for the Hmong, like the Somalis, the written language wasn't created until much later. It wasn't until the 1970s for us. So for so long, they've not had the words to express the stories that we come from, the way that they see the world. You know, my father says, if the sky that I live under can fall on me, and if the earth that I walk on can throw me off, who am I to stand in your way? It is that kind of beauty, that kind of poetry. That, that has given me a reason to be here before all of you. You can hear my voice shaking. I'm nervous. I don't like speaking out loud. If my mom could speak out loud, if my dad could speak out loud, if the person at Kmart or Walmart would stand there and listen without tapping a foot on the floor, I wouldn't be here before you. So that is why I'm here. That is, perhaps that is where my story begins. Yeah. Now, has anyone from your family moved back after having been settled here in the States? Have they moved back to what they would think of as home? No, in um, 2011, my sister was living in Cambodia with her husband, and my, my mother and my father had an opportunity to return back to Southeast Asia. And I started asking my dad all about the place where his father was buried, because I thought I wanted him to be excited for this return. You know, in his, um, when they were scheduled to Laos, my father was stopped at the airport in Lung Prabang, they wouldn't let him through. They let my mom through, my sister, my baby brother. They wouldn't let my father through. My dad says, why? Why can't I go through? And, and the, the, the woman put her hand on her gun, and she said, we kicked you out of this country once. Do you want to be kicked out again? 
So they hiked up the fair, one-way tickets out of the country, and my mom and dad and my sister and my little brother all got back on the plane. And Max, who was five going on six at the time, looked at my father and he said, go back to America with me. America wouldn't be home if you weren't there. So for a long time, you know, my father wasn't sure that he wanted to return. But I want to go back. And I want to go back with my father. In all of the national libraries in Laos, I have a friend who's a bit of an artist. Um, he traveled uh, to, the, to all the libraries with copies of my book and placed it on the shelves. So <laughs> I want to go back and sign those books, <laughs> just for the record, that we were there. Yeah. What does the name the late homecomer mean? The late homecomer. No, my grandma, she was, um, I began writing the book as a 22-year-old at Carleton College. My grandma, who had promised me that she would never die, she was dying. Her paperwork said that she was 93 years old. I went to her. She, she, had, she had a fall in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. I went to her, and I told my grandma to get up, because she said that in, in America, education was the garden that I tended, and that one day we would reap the harvest together. My grandma had never been to school. She didn't know how to read or write. You know, all my life with her, she signed her name with a shaky X, the student for Jolie. She said that she would go and reap the harvest with me. And it was only months away, so I told my grandma to get up. She looked at me, and she said, Maynay, I cannot get up. She said, you have to understand that there were people who loved me before you. That long before you, I had a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters. And that somewhere in the Hmong mountain of my heart, they are waiting for me. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to swing open that door, and dinner is going to be on the table. And everybody will say, where have you been? Why are you so late in coming home? So my grandma was just a late homecomer. And because my book was going to be the first, the first long-authored book to come forth from a literary press in America, I, too, was the late homecomer. And then weren't we all? I was getting all these emails from Somali kids, from the Karen refugees, about how they could tell their stories. And I realized that we were all still in the process of coming home to each other. And I've spent a lot of my time thinking about how you become a citizen when a place becomes yours. But I think the truth is that I know I'm an American when I look at you and you see me as such. That is it, and that is all. It isn't something I wear on me. It isn't something that is written across the state of my being. And so when people look at me, I don't know how many, how many of them believe I'm an American. You know, everywhere I go, people say, Kao Kalia Yang is a Hmong writer. And I fight to become an American writer, and I fight to contribute to American letters and world <coughs> literature. That is the fight before me. That is the fight before a lot of the people, I think, in this room right here, right now. We fight to belong. You know, when people look at us, they hear our accents, they see the color of our hair, the shade of our eyes. So, so America is this moment right here, right now, you asking me these questions because you're interested. You know, there's so much to learn when you're a refugee, whether you're a child or an adult. And very rarely do we have opportunities to learn from each other. And I think that's really the beauty of a forum like this, and where I get to hear from my elders. I get to hear from, from the system that has created me. So you've been meeting many other uh, people here this evening, hearing them uh, who've come from other parts of the world. Does it seem like the same story to you? Does it sound like a very, very familiar story? Very much so. You know, people, they always ask young writers, what are you writing about? And the truth is that we all write about the human experience. It is the pulse of humanity that we feel. 
when we go out there and we put forth our stories and hear those of others. You know, I know the fear of walking through the jungles. I hear it in my mother's voice. I hear it in my father. I, I, know, I know the taste of hunger. And when we were younger, we couldn't afford ice cream in the McDonough Housing Project in St. Paul. And so whenever the ice cream truck came by, my grandma would spread sugar on my tongue and put an ice cube. Uh-huh. And she'd <laughs> Very say, smart. that's sweet and cold coming together in the mouth of a child. You know, she only had one tooth, but we took down Jolly Ranchers and ice cubes and autumn bones. I thought she was the most incredible woman I knew. But as, as I've aged, you know, I meet so many more wonderful women, so many more wonderful men. And I see that although my grandma isn't here to teach me every day, there are others in the world that I can learn from. And hearing these stories, I see that lesson. I'm reminded again of wisdom. Surrounded by wisdom, without the experience to back it up, you don't know how to use it. I don't know how to use it. But when I hear you know, stories of hope, of, of generosity, of care, it makes me believe. Well, uh, <laughs> we are so blessed to have had such a wonderful group of people here with us tonight. And ending with you, Kao, Kalia Yang, thank, thank you. you so much. Please stay here with me for a second. We'll um, say our goodbyes for the program, and then everybody can talk with their neighbors who are here. Um, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas, and this program is part of the Provost Global Forum for 2013, the topic, Refugees in the Heartland. And uh, very great thanks to people from the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights for organizing, really, a a wonderful four-day conference, and also to international programs. Uh, I'd like to thank our production partners, University of Iowa Television, the UI Pentecost Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. And uh, this program, if you don't already know, will be broadcast on cable services around the state and on uh, KRUI-FM. Free listening worldwide is available through iTunes and the Public Radio Exchange. Uh, You can find information on how to connect to those things at international.uiowa.edu. Please join us on May 3rd at 5 o'clock here in this room for the next program, which is called Remaking the Body, Identity and Body Modification. We have a great group of uh, panelists that evening, so please do join us. I want to say thank you to my colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, Sorolta Graves, Mary Patterson, Shana Oli, and Christopher Clough. And a big thanks to Rod Mickle and the UITB technical team, which makes our broadcast possible. Biggest thanks of all, perhaps, to those of you who joined us this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. That's it for tonight. We'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.